0: but he does see this clear distinction between the old testament and the new testament and so in terms of prophecy you see that there is still prophecy but instead of it being this global universal everybody it or else kind of thing it's like let's let's evaluate let's consider it let's pray about it as an agreement we act on it and if not you simply just don't follow those people here's two examples of this in acts 13 verses 2 through 3 While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. How did the Holy Spirit say that, do you think? Did the ceilings open up and he literally spoke or do you think he spoke through somebody as they were praying together? Most likely as they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, someone said, I believe God is saying to set apart Barnabas and Saul for a work. So how they respond? Verse three, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They didn't just say, well, shoot, this guy thinks that, so let's just go ahead and obey it. No matter what, no questions asked. They continued to fast. They continued to pray. There was agreement. Put their hands on them and sent them off. So there was this kind of evaluation that happens. Same thing in 1 John 4, verse one. It says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets, prophets have gone out into the world. And again, he doesn't say, and go kill the false ones. He just says, test them, evaluate them, and don't believe the wrong ones. So throughout the New Testament, we get this sense that prophecy happens in the local church, which within the context of people worshiping, fasting, praying. And no one ever says things like, thus says the Lord in some kind of authoritative, all must listen, this is for the nations I'm speaking on behalf of God for the whole world. It wasn't like that. Instead, there was a sense of like, I believe God has this to say. This is the sense I'm getting. This is the word that I'm getting. And others were invited to participate in that and pray about that and evaluate that. And they could come to agreement and they as a whole church could could act because of it. It wasn't like, God has said this, I'm going to write it down, and now all you churches, you must all hear this message. It wasn't like that. So I would say, in the New Testament, people with prophetic gifts were humble, and when they believed they received something from the Lord, they would submit it humbly and allow others to pray about it, weigh it, determine it, but not have an attitude of, well, if you're not listening, then you're not obeying God. That kind of more of the sort of the arrogant side is what we need to avoid here. So, we've mentioned what are prophets. Let's also talk quickly about what is prophecy. I've kind of already mentioned it, but let's just be very specific. Prophecy is not just telling the future, that is part of it. That's what the word actually means originally foretelling, literally. But it came to basically mean anybody who was declaring God's will, because even the Bible, when you read the Old Testament prophets, for example, they didn't just say, this is coming. They would say, this is coming, and here's what you should do about it, and here's what God thinks, and here's what you're doing. They had this way of relating. Here's where you're at, here's where God is, here's what you should be thinking, because here's a warning, here's an encouragement. And so it, it became sort of, it encompasses all of this idea of declaring God's will to man, not just the future. They also spoke about things happening in the present. Like I said, exhorting, correcting, rebuking, challenging, also encouraging, comforting. So because of this, the word prophecy is also associated with teachers. And in the New Testament, you'll see often like prophecy and teaching side by side because they kind of go hand in hand. Because when I'm reading the scripture before you, this is God's revelation. And what I'm saying, this is what God has to say about that. That is kind of declaring God's will to you. So it's a type of, of prophecy. So when Jesus talks about false prophets in this passage, he's not just referring to people who tell the future and tell that wrong. He's talking about anybody who speaks on behalf of God falsely. It includes false teachers. It's anyone, any teacher, any messenger, anyone who's attempting to teach others about God and they're doing it incorrectly, that would be called a false teacher or a false prophet. Because what we're doing when we do that, what I'm doing is I am having the audacity to represent to you what I think God would say for your life. I'm reading this to you, I'm saying, this is God's will for you. I'm representing God before you, and that's audacious, it's serious. And that's why James 1 verse 3 says, Not many should desire to do this, because you're going to be judged more strictly because of it. That applies also, by the way, to anybody, not just pastors, who tries to prop themselves up as a spokesperson for God to tell others what God has for their life. If you're representing God to other people and are doing that falsely, you're going to come under stricter judgment. And so it shouldn't be taken lightly. So that's what prophecy is, is representing God to people in a generic sense. So then, what is a false prophet? We discussed prophecy, or we've discussed prophets and prophecy. So now what does it mean to be a false prophet? We're warned here of false prophets. Logically, this means there's going to be true and false prophets. There's going to be true and false teachers. And like I said in 1 John 4, verse 1, don't just trust everybody. Weigh it. Evaluate it. You can't just listen to anybody and think what they're saying is true. Even if they seem very sincere when they say it, doesn't mean it's true. How can we evaluate, by the way, a word of the Lord from somebody? How do we evaluate that? Someone says, I think God has told me this about you. How do we evaluate that? This one is not rhetorical. I've not put up my R sign. Yes. First main question, is what they're saying contrary to the purpose and the heart of God? Is what they're saying to you contrary to the purposes and the heart or the heart of God? That's the main thing. The second thing is, maybe it's not contrary, but it's still not right for you. Maybe it doesn't ring true in your heart. Maybe as you pray about it, you can appreciate that, but you think, you know, I just... I don't feel like I, I don't resonate with that for me. I appreciate that you had the courage to tell me that, but I don't, it doesn't resonate with me. I think it also must be said loudly. I'm kidding. <laughs> I think it must be said that it is possible to prophesy falsely without being a false prophet. I really want us all to hear that. It might sound odd at first, but when Jesus describes false prophets, and we're going to look more at that in a second... It's important to say that even believers might think they've heard something from God and they might say that and they might be wrong. And that doesn't mean they're a false prophet, especially if they're humble when they do it and they're teachable and they can come back and they can admit, I think I was wrong in that. If they're always just trying to like bend their earlier prophecies, to say, no, it still makes sense, but everyone around them can kind of tell, no, that wasn't really a thing. That's not what I mean. If you actually can say, "I think God was saying this," but I'm looking at it now, I think maybe He didn't. That's humility, and that's what we're looking for. But if if you if you always have the sense of this is what God said, and it cannot be wrong, and no matter what happens later on, it must be something different, but it's got to be true. That's not humility. That'd be more of the false prophecy. But it is possible to prophesy falsely, and I'll give you an example. For my own life, when I was in, um, I guess I was college age, I was, before I went to Germany, I was part of a prayer group. We met weekly at this couple's house and they were a great biblical couple. They loved each other, loved their kids, loved the church. And they had us all over every week. We'd pray together and they knew I was going to Germany. And the wife said, I thank God that this, this passage came to my mind. And I think God wants me to share it with you about your time that's coming in Germany. And she gave me, Isaiah 42, verses 5, 6, and 7, where it says, and she was saying this as if God had this for me, "'Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, "'who spread out the earth and what comes from it, "'who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. "'I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness.'" I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, this sounds great. I want to be that person. And it's clearly not contrary to the Bible because all it was was Bible verses. But as I prayed about it later on, I knew it wasn't for me for a couple of reasons. For one, this is very obviously a prophecy about the Messiah. What would it even mean for me to become a covenant for the people, like I can save them through something I do for them? Doesn't even make any sense. But it also didn't make sense in terms of the 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 breadth of my ministry in Germany. I didn't become a light for nations. I didn't set nations free from prison. My four-year work ended up being a very important and significant work for a very, very small church and for a very, very, very small youth group. It was important, it was significant, but it was not a covenant for people, a light for nations. It just simply was not that. So what do I do with that? Is she then a false prophet? Should I have cut them off, called them out for the whole church, kicked them out? I don't think so. Because she didn't present it as, thus says the Lord and obey me or else. It was humbly, as I was praying for you, this passage came to my mind. I'm just going to share it with you. It's up to you if you think that that's from God or not. And I think that's great. It takes courage to do that. It takes courage, if you think God is telling you something, to confess that to others with uh, with an air of, of honesty and humility and say, this might not be, but this is what I'm thinking. Why don't you pray about it? So I just wanted to make sure we understand that just because we make mistakes doesn't mean we're false prophets. We should be pursuing these things and and trying to be used by God, and we might make mistakes. That's fine. For example, like in our weekly readings this week, Noah, Genesis 9, he was a prophet in his time. And yet later on in life, he gets too drunk on wine, makes a mistake. His kids find out about it. It's kind of embarrassing. So if a prophet is somebody who is representing God to the people, that was a mistake on his part, wasn't it? Does that mean he became a false prophet? I don't think so. I think he made a mistake. Or Abraham. He had prophecy, right? God was going to make him a great nation. He becomes a prophet. God's given him a word of the Lord, but he makes mistakes. Abraham, uh, in Genesis 12, when he made mistake, went to Egypt, disobeyed God, went to Egypt, told his wife to lie about being, being his, you know, her, his wife and all that. That was a mistake. It didn't mean he was a false prophet. It just means he made a mistake. So, a false prophet is different than that. In chapter 7, verse 15, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So here's kind of the difference. And it's sort of like what, what Noah, or what Finley was saying. A true false prophet knows they're lying. They're ravenous wolves. But think about that. It says here, they come to you in sheep's clothing. So they look like a sheep. They talk like a sheep. They smell like a sheep. Basically, what he means by that is we're all Christians. We're called sheep because God's our shepherd, our great shepherd, so we're sheep. He's saying they're going to look like you, talk like you, sound like you, act like you. But inside... They're not like you. They're actually ravenous wolves. And that word ravenous is important because it points to motivation. They're hungry. They're greedy. They want to harm you. They want to exploit you. They want to devour you. They're in it for themselves. But how can we tell? If they look like you and they act like you, how can they tell? Well, Jesus says, we're going to be able to tell by their fruits. In verse 16... You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree... Oh, nope, that was too far ahead. Yeah, okay. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So fruit, when he mentions fruit, he's talking about what they produce. And that doesn't just mean... In their ministry, does their ministry have fruit? Because false prophets can have booming ministries. It's talking about all of what their life produces in terms of their life, their attitude, their ministries, all of it. And a quick glance might not be enough. They might pass the initial inspection. But if you really look at them, at what they're saying, at what they're doing, at how they're living... There are going to be things that stand out to you that are red flags you should be paying attention to. Are they selfish? Are they easily angry? Are they judgmental? Are they arrogant? Are they saying things that are contrary to Scripture? Does it seem like all of their prophecies have some sort of call to action to either buy their material, buy their course, buy their conference, send them money to donate to their ministry. Is all of it pointed towards that? If you go to their website, you see like 20 different kinds of offerings you can give to their ministry. I've seen that. So, I'm going to give some examples from my life about false prophets. Um, there was a man I met in Germany... It's the weirdest story I'll tell today. There won't be this weird, most of them. Remember the story of the prophet that the donkey had to get involved to, to correct him? He had a gift, but was using it incorrectly, but it was still a gift God gave him. And you kind of wonder, why did he have the gift if his heart wasn't in the right place in the first place? That kind of thing. Well, I met a man in Germany that he showed up at the pastor's house and wanted a place to stay asked to pray over us, began praying, began speaking in tongues, began prophesying, and said specific things the pastor was going through and thinking through that he had told nobody, and told me specific things I was thinking about that I told, and I didn't know this guy at all, specific things, but he stays at the house, and we're very fascinated with this guy, so we're asking of questions about the Bible, and we're just, I mean, that was an amazing thing that happened, right? But as... We week turned into two weeks. Some weird things started to happen. We started finding out, for example, he was spending hours and hours and hours and hours making international phone calls to his friends back in the States and racking up a bill of hundreds of dollars for this pastor. And this guy had no money. And when he was confronted about it, he got very defensive. I know you never want to be in your house anyway. You're just against me. You're persecuting me, blah, blah, blah. And he left. And we realized that's what this guy does. Is he goes from house to house. They'll take him in until they find out he's taking advantage of them. And then he makes it sound like they're persecuting him and he leaves and goes somewhere else. I can't deny, though, that he had an accurate prophecy about me. But look at the fruit. You'll know them by their fruits. He was a false prophet. Prophesying true things but being a false prophet. That's a weird one. But I used to work, I might have mentioned, I used to work for a, what I thought was a Christian TV station. And then I ended up quitting because I found out that they were very serious false prophets. Um, there's this doctrine called seed time and harvest that, they, you know, you're not going to see a harvest unless you sow some seed. And there's a, a very practical, logical truth about that. Don't expect to see a harvest if you're not investing, right? That makes sense. But these guys to talk about your spiritual walk and my ministry. And they'll say, God's not going to move in your life unless you sow a seed, and they mean my ministry. And so they'd give out stories of so-and-so was on fixed income, had all these medical problems and couldn't pay their bills, and they felt God lead them to give up their only car to our ministry. And then somehow God turned it around and a check came in the mail and paid for all their bills. And it was always stories like that of like, however bad financially you are, yet still give us money, because God will then still bless you. And when I saw the way these leaders in this ministry lived, in their multi million dollar houses on lakes with all their new Cadillac cars. And they're begging for money from the poorest of the poor and giving them hope, saying, God is ready to move in your life. He wants to move in your life, but He cannot move. He's hindered until you sow a seed. And there's a number down below where you can call and you can donate right now. I'm like, this is false prophecy if I've never seen it before. This is what this is. Not true. It's leading many people astray. For every one person that God blessed by that, there were thousands probably who gave their last bit of savings and got nothing because God doesn't promise to always meet whatever you think your need is if you throw enough money at it. It's not how blessings work. So, second example I'll give about false prophets, false teachers. There's a certain kind of celebrity culture we struggle with in the West The church is kind of part of this. We seem to want to prop up anybody who can gain a following of any kind. Maybe they've got a funny personality. Maybe they seem cool down to earth. Maybe they communicate well. Maybe they're funny. They dress cool. Whatever it is, they seem to have churches that grow fast, quickly, at least the first time. And so we want to put these guys on pedestals. What are you doing that we can all learn from? And kind of create this celebrity culture around them. And some of these churches, as they get bigger and they have more money, the pastors begin to make more money. And you can see a lot of these younger guys that have had a successful church get caught up in things like, you know, fashion and expensive cars and hanging out with celebrities. And it's not like there would be anything wrong with that per se, except for the pattern you see over and over again, where when that happens, the next thing you hear in the news is, oh, they've had an affair and their ministry is falling apart and their church is falling apart. It seems like over and over again, these young kind of hip celebrity pastors that everyone wants to prop up for a second they've got all the coolest clothes and the cool tattoos and the funniest statements and their bands really rock and next thing you know they're they're cheating on their wife and they're it's, it's over and over again but you might see a guy before that fall and say well why not god needs rich people doesn't he to bring the gospel to the country clubs?" God needs men in Ferraris to join up in, in like a Ferrari club to preach the gospel there. Doesn't God need people to be celebrity friends? Like, why, why not? We forget, though, that evangelism doesn't work that way. Did John the Baptist have to be like a Pharisee to preach to Pharisees? Did Jesus have to be rich to bring someone like Lydia to the faith, who was a rich and powerful woman for the faith? He was a poor carpenter. We don't need to be like the world to reach the world. We need to be like Christ, not the world. So this whole celebrity culture thing, like try to attract people to me and put a spotlight on me and make me this and that. And it just drives me crazy. It's 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 celebrity culture. And this there's this mentality that people think this is how we evangelize now. And there's, there's photo shoots where pastors will pay for a professional photo shoot. So as they're posting to Instagram. They're on their own page. They're quoting themselves. They're putting their thing in quotes by their name and they're the one posting it and then they're going to use a backdrop photo where they paid for a photo shoot and it's just feeding into the whole lie of like, if I look good on the outside, I must be good on the inside. You better follow me because I've got it together. Look at my cool photo. Look at my cool clothes. Here's this cool phrase that I use. This is my awesome band. And we just follow that thing and it just... fuels this kind of prideful thing and so many of them fall when you know people like that what you should be doing is praying a lot for them because they're part of the machine but they're not the only ones in that machine there are others that are building them up and they have pressure to be a certain way and to maintain that and it leads to a lot of unhealthy families a lot of unhappiness a lot of depression behind the scenes um should be praying a lot for those people Um, Another example I had of false prophets. This is my last example. There are some people who claim to be prophets, but what they mean by that is that they have a kind of unique, exclusive, secretive relationship with God that you can't have, that they have, and that if you want to be on the same level with God as they are, You have to buy into all of their things and follow them and watch their videos, go to their conferences, get their books, do those things because they have this intimate thing that nobody else has. And the danger of that is it contradicts when the Bible says that Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And it makes you feel like to be close to God, you have to go through this person because they're where it's at. They've really arrived, and if I want to be where they're at, I need to go under them and do their thing and follow their classes and do their stuff, because then I'll really be there, and Christ will say to you, I'm right here. You don't need anybody else. I'm right here for you. And these false prophets, with this kind of exclusive message, that's what Gnosticism was. That was this whole idea like, We have private knowledge that's not given to everybody. It's just for us, and you have to come to us to get it. It's the same problem we have with the um, conspiracy theorists. It's private knowledge, and these are creeping into the church. All these Christians that are super right wing, super like, you know, NRA, like just gung ho, like Trump is still president. Like all the conspiracy you can imagine are creeping into the church. It's private knowledge. You all don't know what's going on. You got to go to these secret 4chan channels, and you got to read all this private stuff because you all don't know. And Christ would say, Christ would say, "I'm right here. It's not secret. It's not private." I'm right here. Okay, so what do we do then if we determine that somebody's actually a false prophet? It's not that they're following God and loving God and wanting to be a prophet and they're trying and they make mistakes sometimes, but if someone's really a false prophet, what do we do? Well, in verse 15, it says, beware of them. And then it mentions how to recognize them. But once we do recognize them and we are aware of them, anything else? Should we stone them? Should we beat them up? In a dark alley at night, find them alone? Throw a few punches? Anything? No. Why not? Verse 19 says Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. By who do you think? Yes. Right. God is like um, the harvester. Right. Yeah. It is not that false prophecy is not serious. It's not that being a false prophet is not a bad thing. But God is saying, I'll take care of that. You don't stone them anymore. I'll take care of it. I will cut that tree down. I'll throw it into the fire. Fire is always a metaphor of hell for the most part. Not always, but mostly when he's talking about throwing them in the fire here, he doesn't mean purifying them like, like when it talks about, you know, being baptized in the water and fire. He's talking about judgment. God will ultimately pass the judgment on them, not us. And this is, again, different from Old Testament prophecy. In the Old Testament, the command was, nope, go ahead and stone them. It is still serious, but God's going to take care of it. We don't need to go around stoning false prophets, but we should refuse to follow them and we should warn others about them. If you know somebody who's following a false prophet, you should warn them. And like I said before, someone's got the gifts of prophecy, but they make mistakes. Sometimes it's not that. But in terms of truly false prophets, these ravenous wolves that are out to harm you, God will get them. Judgment is coming. And this is verse, verse 20. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. So, although this might seem like a grim message, I do want to end with encouragement from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. We should desire to prophesy. We should desire that gift. We should desire it. While we are warned against desiring to be a teacher... To hold an official position representing God before the people, we are not discouraged from desiring to prophesy. We should desire it. We should want God to use us to bless others. So don't be discouraged, don't be afraid of making mistakes. A believer, if you're a believer and you want to be used by God, as long as you're pursuing that in a humble way, and if you get a word from God and you're sharing with somebody else and you're, you're presenting it like this is what I think God was saying, would you pray about this with me? Man, God can use you if you want to pursue that. God could really use that. But it takes humility, it takes being teachable, and then pursue it. Pursue all the gifts, and especially that you may prophesy.